everyone. Welcome to today's uh, session, the second of our safety leadership series. Uh, today we're going to run a bit of a panel format. So uh, we've got our national team on the line. We've got Steve Bell, who is a leader in uh, Melbourne. We have Aaron Anderson up in Brisbane and Anna Cregan uh, over in Perth. Um, so the format of today will be really a bit of a uh, about the grounds in all of the, uh, the, the Herbert Smith Freehills safety teams. Um, and we'll be swapping notes really on some legal and regulatory uh, developments across the country. Um, uh, of course, with a bit of a focus on mental health and sexual harassment as, as fairly uh, hot topics at the moment. Uh, before we begin today, I, I think it's important to acknowledge the owners of the traditional lands I'm living and working on in Gadigal country. I recognise the Gadigal people's continued connection to culture and country and pay my respects to their elders, both past, present and emerging. Um, so today's session will be uh, really each of, each of us talking about what uh, developments in each of our jurisdictions. We're hoping that the session will be about a 40-minute session um, and I'd invite you to submit comments as we go and we, we will uh, we'll try to get 20 questions as they come up. Um, so of course any kind of uh, about the grounds at the moment it would be very very hard to avoid covering off on mental health and sexual harassment. Um, now, as a starting point, we've had mental health and sexual harassment, you know, technically covered by WHS laws for over a decade. But we've seen in the last few years some really rapid policy and legal reform in those areas and significant interest, particularly on the issue of sexual harassment in the last 12 months from media and, and regulators. Um, just as a bit of context, uh, the starting point for a lot of this current reform that we're seeing was the 2018 review of the model WHS laws. Uh, in 2018, Marie Boland released her review into the model WHS laws and found that in general, those laws were working well. But one of the key issues that she identified as uh, perhaps wanting under those laws was whether the model WHS laws and WHS laws in general had dealt with the issue of psychological health appropriately. Um, anecdotally, uh, there had been, you know, over the last decade, there has been an increase in psychological health issues in the workplace. Uh, and during the same time, a, you know, a, 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 a decrease uh, to the rates of, of physical injuries. Uh, so her recommendation was that policymakers and regulators uh, should have an increased focus on how WHS laws and how enforcement of those laws are managing psychological safety. And uh, we've had policymakers working on that over the last few years since the release of that report. Um, recently, we've had the New South Wales Safe Work release uh, and publish, kind of be first came off the rank in publishing a um, a, a model code of practice for how employers and, and how businesses ought to be managing risks uh, to mental health in the workplace. Uh, and we've seen an agreement from uh, the relevant ministers for uh, prescriptive law reform in that area. Um, again, you know, I'm sitting in Sydney and I'm, I'm working from home, so it feels a bit like Groundhog Day, but you know, it is worth reflecting as well on, on how the management of, of mental health has been challenged by the rapid changes to workplaces and, you know, the increasing prevalence of working from home and distributed workforces. Um, 
And uh, more recently, in particular over the last six months, we've had a, a real focus, particularly in the, the WHS space, on how uh, how the issue, risks and hazards of, of sexual harassment, which is fundamentally a psychological safety risk, are being managed uh, by employers. So you will have, you will have read today that Parliament's going to be introducing a one-hour voluntary sexual harassment training to MPs, which I guess for them means the issue was solved, but but our other other organisations are really grappling with the issue of how to move from the traditional approach of, of seeing sexual harassment really as an individual complaint issue, you know, dealing with reputational and legal liability issues and moving towards increasingly the expectation uh, that employers take a, a proactive, you know, risk-based approach to actually eliminating and, and minimising the risk of sexual harassment in workplaces. Um, the genesis of that, to some extent, was the Respect at Work report, which was released last year uh, by Kate Jenkins. Uh, that following uh, various issues um, in Canberra has been picked up by the federal government, who have introduced a suite of, of legal reforms responding to the recommendations uh, in the Respect at Work report. And that is really, you know, it, it is a bit of a patchwork quilt, uh, the reform that will be introduced in response to that. But we expect in the safety space, and we have seen um, regulators hear the call that they ought to be responding to sexual harassment as a safety risk in a, in a very robust and systematic way. Uh, and we are starting to see safety uh, regulators publish guidelines and, and guidance on, on how sexual harassment ought to be approached with that, that WHS thinking. So it's, uh, it's an interesting time, particularly in the psychological safety space. Um, and it's, it's great to have the whole team on the line today because I think we'll all have um, uh, different, uh, different uh, points of view about how these issues will play out. So as a starting point, I just wanted to throw to Aaron, I think one of the real questions uh, raised with treating uh, psychological safety as, a, as a, a safety issue is, you know, the potential for there to be uh, a bit of a tension between safety laws and discrimination laws and employment obligations. So I just wanted to start there and, and ask Aaron, um, to what extent do you think an employer can force an employee to take time off if they're concerned about the mental health of um, risk to them or, or force them to change roles? And, and do you have any views about how employers ought to be balancing WHS obligations with those other obligations under disability and employment laws? Mm. Thanks for the hard question there. That's fantastic. Um, look, I just wonder whether with this sort of heightened focus now in the media and with evolving laws and looking at what regulators are doing, uh, in this space, and as you described, with the uh, heightened focus on sort of proactive um, and risk-based approach to managing. Uh, to take an action they mightn't otherwise take uh, in relation to a particular worker because they think that's necessary to discharge their legal duties under the WHS regime. And that, that might mean, as you say, um, an employer says, look, we, we might need to sort of change a person's role uh, or change a person's working arrangements because in their view, that's a necessary step to discharge a statutory WHS duty. But I think um, what, what you can't lose sight of and what's been an issue that has existed 
uh, for many years now, including since the implementation of discrimination laws, and in Queensland, sort of that was in the 90s under the Anti-Discrimination Act, uh, is that there is some sort of collision at times between discharging a statutory duty, um, but also then discharging other duties that exist and protections that exist under, for example, anti-discrimination laws. And so I think the starting point for everyone not to forget is this. Um, yeah, we've got to do, do, do things proactively to discharge our statutory duties, but when it comes to what the protections are under discrimination laws, um, it's fundamentally unlawful and breach of discrimination laws to disadvantage someone in their employment because someone has an illness or an injury. Um, so sort of taking those sorts of steps um, with good intent may well mean that employers fall foul of those sort of anti-discrimination protections that do exist and then you know put themselves subject to those sorts of claims. So it's an important balancing act. I think um, what employers need to understand um, in seeking to discharge their legal duties um, both, under both regimes is that the Anti-Discrimination Act has a number of exemptions um, across the country in terms of the various legislation that exists. Um, broadly speaking, there are exemptions um, for employers where they need to take steps to discharge obligations under statutory WHS regimes. But again, if you look at all the case law um, in dealing with anti-discrimination um, complaints that have been brought, um, in my view, practically, um, there's a strong onus on employers to be able to satisfy uh, you know, tribunals or be able to demonstrate to employees uh, through obtaining appropriate medical advice um, in relation to um, what their genuine concerns are about a person's capacity to perform their role or the need to modify a role or, or move some, someone to a different location um, in order to make a justifiable decision to do so that doesn't put you in breach of discrimination uh, protections and allows you to discharge obligations under the WHS law. So, you know, it's a fine balancing act, um, but acting on, you know, proper medical advice or opinion um, that you need to, to obtain about the particular individual um, and consulting with the individual because those duties exist under the WHS regime as well um, so that properly informed decisions can be made and, and hopefully on a collaborative basis with consent of the employee um, before sort of any employer engages in sort of a knee-jerk reaction that might put them for, for, you know, make, mean that they fall foul of discrimination legislation, um, albeit with good intent. So it's a difficult issue, but it's certainly a tricky one that employers should think carefully through and seek advice when necessary. Thanks, Lauren. Um, Anna, I just wanted to pick up on that um, as well, the, the, uh, the recent calls for prescriptive safety laws specifically addressing mental health. I just wanted to find out, has there been any progress in the area? Do we expect to see more? Well, there has, Nerida. Um, you may recall um, the way that mental health is legislated has been the subject of quite some discussion nationally. The ACTU in particular has been making um, a series of calls for further prescription on how employers must manage and PCBUs must manage mental health risks. That um, received some attention at a federal and state and territory level earlier this year. As you would know, in May this year, the relevant ministers with responsibility for health and safety met, discussed the Boland report and resolved to amend the model work health and safety regulations to adopt the recommendation of Marie Boland that there should be specific prescription around mental health. So they were um, they were all agreed that 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 some um, change would be required to the model regulations on that front. What we're now expecting are updated model regulations, which do specifically address mental health risks, 
And importantly, what we expect them to do is to give guidance on how mental health risks must be identified as a starting point. So further guidance to a PCBU about how to spot a mental health risk in the workplace, and then guidance or, or prescription rather on appropriate control measures. So what PCBUs must do to control those risks to the appropriate standard. That is quite a landmark departure from the way the laws are currently cast. As you would know, the laws are currently cast in a, a, a risk-based um, way, which allows PCBUs to conduct their own risk assessments and form their own view as to what risks um, exist and what controls are appropriate to manage that risk to the requisite standard. So when these changes are made, it, it, they will require some attention from employers and, and all other PCBUs to um, understand exactly what that means for their workplace and um, what they need to do differently in order to manage mental health risks. We don't yet have any detail about what the regulations will look like, but we're expecting that in September this year, so it's imminent. And, um, and as I say, should um, rightly receive quite some attention from a range of bodies, I imagine. So that, that's one thing that we've seen, an update to the model regulations. The other area, as you would know, where there's been a lot of movement in, is in New South Wales and its specific code of practice for um, the management of mental health, the managing psychosocial hazards at work code of practice. Um, that kind of practice really leads the way, I think, in Australia in setting the tone and in setting guidance for the management of mental health risks in the workplace. It sees um, what is quite a considered move away from administrative controls um, as we would know them, which involves things like education, training, um, requiring individuals to report their mental health status and, and any um, understood mental health risks into a new field for the management of mental health risks involving reconsideration of job design, working hours. Um, we query whether this will feed into recent discussion of, and, <clears throat> and claims for recognition of a right to disconnect in workplaces. This really um, proposes um, that employers consider more wholesale changes to the way work is done to ensure that mental health is properly protected. So, so that's it really. It, I mean, they're the main things that, um, that that sits over top of obviously a very active national discourse about mental health generally and mental health in the workplace. Thanks Anna, it's going to be a busy year I think, um, what's, what's left of it. Um, and I thought uh, just, just um, I, I might turn to Steve because I think there's been some really interesting trends across the country um, you know, but some emerging themes in enforcement action, not necessarily just in the space of mental health, but I just wanted to get a sense of where we're up to and um, what you see as the current trends in enforcement action at the moment. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Narita. Thanks, guys. It's um, fascinating to hear those insights. I should, I should acknowledge at the start of this session that I'm sat here in my office in front of some very empty shelves. Um, so rumours of the demise of my practice are greatly exaggerated. We're in the process of moving, as I stand here today, to new offices across the road. It's very exciting uh, for, for us as a firm. We've been in these offices for, for many, many decades, frankly. So the move will be something exciting for us, which is why I've been cleared out. It's not that I'm wanting things to do. So, Neri, your question's interesting. I guess, um, you know, the, there'll be a tension, I think, for, for the next six months between this pull onto topical and urgent and important issues, managing mental health, as we all deal. I'm sat here in Melbourne now. 15th of July and the sort of pre-lockdown doom uh, of, of, of impending uh, changes to the way I'll be working probably for the next week or so. 
Um, so we will have this tension, I think, of a, of a need for employers to focus on mental health and change and people being uncertain about their future. And then there's this overlay of, again, uh, urgent and important uh, focus on, on sexual harassment in the workplace. Although you might query if uh, imposing that jurisdiction on health and safety regulators is right for, for their workload and for their capacity to deal with those matters. But I did want to pause and, and, and remind, I suppose, the, the, the attendees on, on this uh, uh, webinar and those who will watch it afterwards, that the core of health and safety remains um, physical health and safety, and that's going to remain important. And so we'll have this tension, I think, between the, 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 the new, the emerging and the desire and the need, I think, to move health and safety systems much more broadly across risk and thinking about risk in terms of psychological risk and what that means for worker welfare and the broader you know public safety sexual harassment risks etc so there's this ever broadening i think of health and safety regulation which is no bad thing in a social sense but a challenging thing i think in a, a health and safety management sense the critical thing and the, and the thing I, you know I've, I've been working with clients to do i suppose is to manage that that change event you know that need to focus on something new with the need to continue to focus on the the, the things that are core critical health and safety risks, which are physical risks. Um, and there's, a, there's a, an element of that as well, which I, I think remains unresolved, you know, as, as, as we've been doing these sessions over the many years we've been talking about them, we've spoken about contractor management as being a key element of getting, getting health and safety right. There's a couple of cases that caught my eye in, in, in New South Wales recently that really kind of bring this issue to the fore. Uh, one of them, a, a, a major, you know, tier one construction company um, had uh, a, a serious incident on one of its sites in relation to a task that was fundamentally something that was being done by one of its subcontractors. The subcontractor was demobilising some works that had been uh, undertaken on a barge and so that there was some equipment which had been stacked up uh, during that demobilisation process. And this, this you know, major uh, contractor had a staff member walking past this, you know, routinely and they stacked equipment, fell, struck, uh, uh, and, and had a serious consequence for a for a labour hire worker. And you might think, well, that's that's a plainly a failure of that expert subcontractor. What is it that the the principal has to do? What what more could they have done in relation to that physical risk? But the court in that case actually found that the principal had a primary accountability and was and was uh, susceptible to a you know a serious penalty, a penalty in the you know nearly approaching million dollar uh, liability. For failing to oversee the way in which that contractor had performed its demobilisation works. What was interesting was the, and it's not often the case that you see this, but the court peeled back the commitments that the parties had made in their underlying contract. What had this principal promised to do? And it had promised in, in, the, in, the, in its underlying agreement that it would take undertake routine daily inspections and those daily inspections would be passed on to the contractor. So it had written its own script for the way in which it was accountable for overseeing the works of the of the contractor and probably overreached, probably set a standard which was an unnecessary standard for it to have set. But when an incident occurred, it's impossible then to turn around and say, well, it wasn't reasonable for us to have undertaken these inspections. You promised you would. You said that you would, and your system required that you that you would do that. Even if it's a specialist uh, set of works, if there are obvious foreseeable risks, there's a there's a positive duty to intervene, particularly in circumstances where you've set that standard for yourself. And so there's, a, there's an element to that which I think brings to the fore this need to have clarity around the division of responsibilities on these sorts of multi-contractor sites. 
who's in charge of what, who's accountable for what, what are the monitoring and assurance regimes, what are the things which fall squarely within the responsibility of an expert subby? What are the things that a principal can, can do? But frankly, I think good intent, sometimes that strips capacity for, for some larger employers on these sites and they might set a standard for themselves, which is impossible to meet, but having done it, having set that standard, you know, they can, they can find themselves in that position, particularly in the, you know, the aftermath of a terrible incident. That horrendous you know, scaffolding collapse that we saw in New South Wales that resulted in the death of Chris Casanati, uh, you know, horrendous incident, a scaffolding subcontractor failure. But what is, I suppose, legally interesting coming out of that incident is that the prosecution in that case was brought against the principal of that site, the main contractor accountable for that site, not the scaffolding subby. And again, the principal was found to have failed to have properly undertake an inspection of something that was a, a specialist role of a, of a subcontractor. And there was absolute uncertainty as to who was accountable so the court found for uh, monitoring and assuring themselves of those temporary structures. So, I, I, you know, we, we, we should and we must talk about men mental health risks, but I, I do think there remains work to be done, frankly, in clearly understanding what a uh, principal, the boss of a site is supposed to do in a, in a corporate sense, what a subcontractor is supposed to do, what assurance should look like. And, and uh, you know, the, some of the most fruitful and frankly rewarding work that we do with clients is helping them get that balance right. What is right for safety? What 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 puts responsibility where it should be? Uh, if we remove ambiguity about who's accountable for what, it's good for lawyers, I suppose, but it, but it's also good for safety because it actually gives clarity as to who's supposed to be doing what. So, um, you know, as an as an around the grounds update for, for for the practitioners on the on the call here or in house counsel, it remains I think really important to have thought through how you're going to deal with subcontractors in relation to their works, have certainty that your system is achievable and, and be thoughtful about what you put into your written agreements and a boilerplate you know we, we promised we're all in this together on health and safety is aspirational and you know nice but, but if it's not reflecting what's actually happening on the ground there's a, there's a real risk that you're relieving a subcontractor of their control and then not filling the gap because you, you could never do it yourself so those are a couple of things you know and they're outside of the the, the mental health development of you know just hard case laws of serious you know penalties for, for businesses that have, have, have misstepped on a, on a major issue with serious consequences. Thanks Steve, there's certainly a theme in New South Wales and, and kind of worth reflecting on. Um, we're seeing uh, you know a real focus from from safety regulators on principles conduct in relation to to subby works um, so it, it's yeah it is good to reflect on that but I will turn back to mental health um, I did want to ask Anna, how, how have you seen employers uh, managing mental health issues during COVID and what have been the, the kind of challenges? That's an interesting question, Narita. There were a lot of statistics publicised during COVID, which you, you would recall, about the prevalence of mental health issues um, across Australia and the fact that mental health issues were on the rise. There's a, a fundamental question as to um, to what extent that is connected to work and to what extent that's a work-related issue. Um, but it's obviously an issue which may have manifested in the workplace, um, at least to some extent. Um, the big issue that came up for employers that we saw in the context of COVID and mental health and um, the workplace was employers grappling with how best to manage this in the context of homework environments. This was quite new, obviously. Homework um, was used in a way that it hadn't been before. There were wholesale 
um, workforces and offices move to home working arrangements with very little notice. And in terms of the management of mental health, this meant that employers at PCBUs needed to very quickly come to grips with how best to identify mental health risks, um, which could include things like an absence of supervision, isolation in day-to-day -day work patterns, um, and address those risks, what controls needed to be put in place. What we actually saw happening um, was mostly wellness programs, new um, systems for engagement like Teams meetings, um, teams meetings for general social engagement, but also for supervision. Um, what we saw less of, and what we've seen um, perhaps less discussion of, are any changes to general work design in the context of home working arrangements, which might better tackle um, work from mental health risks associated with work from home, like restrictions on working hours, like how you properly supervise that. Um, also, are there any permutations of home working arrangements which would better manage um, mental health arrangements like um, staggered working in the office with specified groups of employees where permitted? Um, all of that, it seems, um, was secondary and wasn't really tested in the way that it might have been if we had prolonged instances of work from home as they did in some other jurisdictions. But suffice to say, in Australia, it presented as an issue. Um, it threw up new issues for employers. We saw them applying a, a risk management approach um, and, and in particular, um, applying that in, in the context of the new risks associated with home working. Thanks, Hannah. I think it's a, a bit of a management of change after the change has occurred. So, it's, you know, it's going to continue to be a journey because I don't, I don't think we're going to go back to what workplaces look like necessarily. Um, but again, still on the issue of mental health, I just wanted to ask you, you know, what what are employers doing in relation to sexual harassment given the, the recent public discussion and the, the recent focus by, by regulators and policymakers? Well, we are seeing a lot of activity in this space. Um, you're all aware of the Kate Jenkins report, which very squarely recommended that uh, meant that sexual harassment should be dealt with, should be understood as a safety issue. Uh, we have seen most employers, or certainly many, particularly in the resources sector in Western Australia, take that approach. And what that means, I think, for PCBUs in terms of the management of safety or the management of this issue of sexual harassment is a multidisciplinary approach across the organisation. We're seeing safety teams work with employment teams, human resources teams, um, people responsible for receiving confidential whistleblowing complaints, um, people across the organisation in a range of different fields having to work together to understand the risk that sexual harassment presents in the workplace and how best to manage it. And we are seeing, um, in, even in cases where there's a dedicated multidisciplinary multi approach to managing sexual harassment, a risk-based approach being applied. So it's still being viewed, or, or it now being viewed rather, through the lens of safety and dealt with as a safety issue. Um, in addition to that, that's what's happening within organisations, within their management. There's a governance issue here and it is, it's very clear that um, sexual harassment is an issue which boards are expected to have a high degree of literacy in. They're expected to understand the issue, how it presents. They are expected to be able to make decisions on it quickly if needed, particularly if it involves um, senior management within the organisation. And they are expected, as they are in any other instance, to um, understand the issue and how it's managed within the, within the organisation well enough to properly interrogate whether the organisation is properly managing that issue. So two, um, two areas of activity there. One is within management and within the organisation. The other is very much at a board level.
Thanks, Anna. Um, and, and picking up on Anna's comments, I was wondering, Aaron, do you do you see any uh, new avenues uh, that employees or unions might be able to pursue now that we are seeing, as Anna has spoken about, sexual harassment increasingly being kind of pushed into the safety space and being seen as a safety issue? Look, I think the traditional levers are just going to be used in non-traditional ways. So the traditional levers being, um, you know, unions exercising rights of entry, uh, for example, where they might have a suspicion of contravention of the WHS regime. Uh, you know, um, other sort of statutory office holders like, uh, you know, industry safety and health representatives, for example, um, HSRs under the traditional safety laws who can, you know, issue provisional improvement notices in circumstances where um, you know, they assert there's a, a contravention legislation. I think those traditional levers are going to be used, but as I said, used in a way in the context of, um, you know, where we're moving to with these themes. Um, and I think one of the challenging issues for employers to think about is um, these levers are going to be used in the context of what the safety and health management system, or the safety management systems of organisations look like, <clears throat> you know, so um, what, what, what do they contain and when a union comes on site or a HSR explores the concept and says there's a breach of the law here, um, show me where in your safety and health management system that you're addressing these psychosocial risks um, or issues around sexual harassment, you know, show me the risk assessment, show me the documents, how are the controls um, implemented, what's the consultation look like, you know, employers might need to think about um, how they address that issue because clearly, you know, in the traditional sense, the way you get in the front foot is to say, you know, we're on top of this. Here's where we've risk assessed it. Here's where we've decided on controls in collaboration with the people who needed to be spoken to. And here's what we've done to implement, you know, those controls. And so in this space, I think that'll be challenging. Um, and given, you know, the risk-based nature of the legislation, um, you know, we've got to adopt that approach going forward in managing the issues. But um, something that um, popped out of the woodwork the other day in Queensland that I thought was quite interesting was um, another avenue that exists under the WHS laws, at least under the sort of model laws, uh, and that is the use of the issue resolution processes. Um, and in Queensland, fairly recently, I think it was sort of May, uh, there was an application that was brought by the um, rail, tram and bus union uh, to the Queensland Industrial Relations Commission in relation to a WHS issue that the RTBU said that arose at an Horizon workplace. Now, the, the issue was described um, in a number of ways um, and it was described um, along these lines that a female employee was sexually harassed um, a couple of years ago. Um, as a result of that sexual harassment, the female employee suffered psychological injury. The allegation is that the employer, the PCBU in this case, effectively washed their hands of the issue. And then later on, uh, the union finds out that the uh, victim and the alleged harasser are working in the same workplace. Um, and so the union asserts the WHS issue here is, um, under the WHS law, you have an obligation, first of all, to take reasonably practicable steps to eliminate you know, the risks. Um, and you have the capability to eliminate the very risk here that arises by virtue of the fact that the person who allegedly engaged in this sexual harassment, the other person, is now working in the same workplace. And Horizon, your duty here is to effectively remove them from that workplace and get rid of the risk to this to this lady. Um, so that's how the WHS issue was characterised. Um, and what was interesting was that 
It was first raised um, under the issue resolution processes under the WHS Act, um, which you can do, and it's a really broad provision in my view. It just talks about a work health and safety issue. Once that's raised, the obligation is on the PCBU and the other party to the um, issue to you know, try reasonably try and resolve it. But under the WHS Act, then parties can involve the inspectorate and ask the inspectorate to come in and try and assist with resolution of the issue. And that was done here, the inspectorate was called. Uh, but in Queensland, uh, there is um, a provision, I think it's peculiar to Queensland, uh, and that is um, within 24, sorry, after 24 hours after the inspectorate's notified, any party can go straight to the Queensland Industrial Relations Commission and say, you know what, Commission, we actually want you to resolve this by any form, mediation, conciliation, arbitration. And therefore, in this case, this WHS issue that was sexual harassment that was that happened allegedly two years ago um, is now before the QIRC two years later um, and characterised in the way that I've described it to you. So I think um, employers are going to be faced with these sorts of issues um, and really need to be ready to um, you know, sort of answer the questions when there's legitimate um, WHS um, entry by unions, where there's legitimate notices issued by HSRs, and then when you get the stuff that's a bit outside the box and suddenly you might be for, before a QIRC or in other jurisdictions, you know, administrative tribunals, um, having to um, explain yourself in terms of what you've done to, to manage the WHS issue that's in dispute. So it's going to be challenging times. I mean, uh, anecdotally, Aaron, I, I doubt that most employers would have the same level of documented risk assessment issue that they would have on a, on a physical safety issue. Um, and yet, you know, that's suddenly the paradigm. Suddenly, uh, with, with you know great speed, that's the paradigm we're in now on what are again important but nuanced issues of um, uh, interpersonal management of, of workplaces. And uh, you know, it's not to say it cannot be managed as a health and safety risk, and of course it will have to be now. But all the architecture that organisations have regarding risk assessments and risk registers and uh, you know controls and that sort of language has just not been brought to bear because this has been an issue that has sat with the HR team, uh, you know, and, and fairly so for many years. And now suddenly the health and safety team will need to bring expertise to bear to move up that curve quite rapidly, I think. Because as you've said, you know, that all, soon enough that your approach as an organisation will be tested by an HSR, by an inspector in a, in a court. It's, um, there's a need for, you know, rapid movement, I think. Yeah, I agree, yeah. Steve. Right. It is also worth mentioning the, the consultation material that was released with that code of practice which has been published in New South Wales said exactly that. You know, this will be used as a tool of compliance and at minimum when inspectors enter into your premises they will expect to see a documented risk assessment which is really applying that, you know, that hierarchy of, um, of controls which was developed you know, for physical risk, you know, 50 years ago, is now expected to be applied to, as Steve has, as Steve has said, quite nuanced issues um, dealing with, with sexual harassment and mental health. Um, so it will be a challenge to, to move between the, the current approach. But that's fascinating. Yeah. It's fascinating that you can get in the QARC <laughs> within a couple of days where, you know, traditional processes for resolution of these issues uh, uh, perhaps had less teeth. So um, it, it's interesting to see uh, unions and, and employees be creative and, and, and they will be. So uh, a sign of things to come perhaps. Um, another, amazing, um, thank you. Another complication on that narrative, sorry to, to speak over you, I think you're about to throw to me with this question anyway, but another complication I think on this, how do you bring a traditional health and safety 
HSMS to bear on 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 this new emerging safety uh, now now uh, classified safety issue of sexual harassment goes to board reporting um, and 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 the review that was undertaken by Kate Jenkins following her respect at work report on this issue alone governance and the role of boards on managing sexual harassment set a pretty high bar frankly for the expectations of boards now. Again, without diminishing the importance of this particular topic, uh, this is happening a lot. Uh, you know, health and safety due diligence is an expectation of board active involvement. So is wage theft. Uh, so is sexual harassment. So are environmental concerns. So are competition concerns. And so the list, the, the, the regulatory list goes on. Rightly or wrongly, this sits now at the, on the board agenda. These agendas are getting full, and it's it's hard to uh, imagine how anybody could be anything other than a you know a, a dedicated full-time director in their in their organisation focused on very quite operational issues. But what I thought was interesting of that that report on on the, on the role of boards in managing this particular risk, sexual harassment risk in the workplace, was an assumption that reporting and transparency and and data and metrics needs to increase on this particular issue. And you can see from principled positions why that's a you know it's a good and important idea. But I don't know that we've got clarity yet as to what that would genuinely look like. You know, we know what a hazard ID reporting trend looks like. We know what a lost time injury trend reporting set of data looks like. We even know what qualitative, you know, descriptions of safety initiatives and safety strategies and so on might look like. But taking that thinking and then and then easily transposing it into, again, these issues of sexual harassment or discrimination at work. Is going to take a bit of thought, uh, to be perfectly frank. And there's, um, you know, as I think of our clients across Herbert Smith Freehills, some of them, some of those clients are doing this very well at the moment, but many uh, would would not have the skills or the or the uh, uh, the reference point to necessarily have identified how those metrics are going to sit in board recordings. And so again, I think there's going to need to be that sort of up upskilling and competency across a range of disciplines to think about how you report on this uh, and and what meaningful reporting would look like. In a crowded, as I say, board board agenda. Um, well, with that in mind, I think that we are getting very close to the end of the session. So I, I might just um, put it to you, Steve. What 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 are the issues which are attracting attention of directors, and and more generally, what do you think should be the focus of organisations for the rest of the year? I, I, in the years I've done this, I think safety initiatives that genuinely connect with strategic imperatives for organisations do well. Um, so the strategic imperative of not injuring people at work is important. It's important for a number of reasons. And so that's a, that's a useful way, I think, other than a compliance approach of, of driving health and safety improvement. But as we sit here and think about strategic imperatives for you know the, the boards of the sorts of businesses we're, we're privileged to act for, their imperatives are managing this period of change over the next 12 months, whether we like it or not, there is a period now of 12 months ahead of us of uh, changing uh, in environments either imposed on us by lockdowns or dealt to us by the desire of flexibility at work. And so that change management piece is a strategic productivity imperative for organisations and their boards. And the question for those on this call, for the safety professionals for the in-house council is how do we help the business deliver on that strategic imperative? What are the things that we can do which are enablers from a health and safety or risk management point of view, which help them deliver on that, you know, productivity question that they've got? And if, if I think as well about the, you know, the response we get when we deliver board training, as I, as I know we all do, the, the response from directors when we talk about sexual harassment risk at work, uh, 
often, in my experience, is, is, a, is a response which says this is something that just needs to be got right. This is something that needs to be got right so that we're you know, encouraging uh, participation of women in all levels of our organisation, from the factory, nominal factory floor up to the, 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 uh, the C-suite. So getting this right means creating an environment where women are successful in our organisation and one of the things which is a blocker for that will be the mismanagement of sexual harassment risks. And so again, you know, we, the four of us, naturally approach these things as lawyers and, and, and approach this from a, from a compliance perspective. But I would encourage those on the call, as well as the importance of that, to kind of pick out the, the energy uh, which will exist in your organisation and the energy around getting this right uh, or, or improved. We, we may never get it you know, entirely right, but, but improving that idea of women's participation in, in workforces and creating a better environment for them to succeed and to thrive is actually an energy which is of the moment. And, and there's a chance there, I think, for safety professionals and lawyers and others and others advisors externally to, to drive that energy and, and sort of harness it. So, you know, that those I think are the two things I pick up when I when I chat to, you know, senior leaders. Those are the, the things which kind of energise me, to be frank, of thinking that the law is moving in a, in a sensible direction. And the question is, how do we how do we follow it in a way which is, uh, will stand up to scrutiny? Thanks, Steve. Um, we have a few questions and I, I, I don't know that we'll get through all of them, but there is a question that's come up, Aaron, about the, the um, the case which you referred to um, of the issue resolution procedures applying uh, to a sexual harassment issue essentially and I know that, that that provision or that mechanism to get issue resolution into the QIRC is a, uh, a Queensland specific provision that was introduced I think only a couple of years ago. Um, do you think in, in other jurisdictions there's a you know there's a similar risk of of being able to elevate these types of issues through, you know, potentially those kind of safety or industrial uh, forums? Yeah, no doubt. It might just be through sort of technically different means. So, say in New South Wales, for example, I mean, they've adopted the model laws. So, uh, the sort of ability to raise an issue through the issue resolution processes will still exist. And so, you know, the same first step would apply as, as in the case that I talked about. Um, if that wasn't able to be resolved, then I think the, the ability also exists in New South Wales for either party to the dispute to ring up the inspectorate and say, come and help me resolve this. Um, now, the same ability in New South Wales to take the additional step that the RTBU took to the QIRC uh, doesn't exist as far as I understand it. But um, once the inspector comes in, um, the inspector inevitably helps to resolve the dispute by effectively making a decision, right? Um, and so by making a decision might mean exercising enforcement powers. Um, and then, you know, in New South Wales, for example, if that was the case, then of course the PCBU um, would have then review rights. So you end up going down the traditional review process of, um, you know, an, an application for an internal review. And if that um, didn't fall your way, then of course, then you might get, might take it to the external review body in your jurisdiction. So, you know, you still, you still could end up with, you know, an, an external, tribunal or commission um, looking at the very issue around what does your safety management system say about how we've addressed the issue that's been put in dispute here, um, it'll just be a different mechanism in different jurisdictions depending on how the statutes work. Well, I think that's right for the Aaron. I think that's how that would uh, play out here. I must say, uh, in my experience, the issue resolution process is a sort of a mystical element of health and safety law that uh, isn't isn't part of the common vernacular, to be perfectly frank, unless you get an exceptional circumstance and then suddenly organisations are reaching for their agreed or not agreed, then they're, they're deemed, statutorily deemed, 
issue resolution procedure and it, and it, and it can often create confusion to be frank about how to resolve these matters you know uh, if you can avoid it escalating to that level plainly the better for everybody because once you get into the the detail of what the issue resolution expectations are I've, I've found it very complex and, and to be frank not um, you know, I found that, that organisations find it as a, a complex web of, of suddenly having a statutory overlay and what ordinarily could be dealt with by consultation. So, you know, it's, it's to be avoided for, 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 I think, for good reason. But as you say here in Victoria too, to answer the question, Nerida, you know, you, you would have to trundle off to the internal review unit or, or, the, or the administrative tribunals to resolve those sorts of issues. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think that uh, the, the moving of this, these issues into the WHS space just gives, you know, there's a whole range of, of enforcement and, and uh, powers which sit with, with WHS, uh, under WHS legislation and to health and safety representatives. So, you know, that's when, when those levers need to be pulled by unions, we'll, we'll find them pulling them. So I, th I think that we should, we should certainly expect um, you know, industrial type movement in this space too uh, on, on uh, sexual harassment and, and psychological safety. Um, we are running out of time. There are a few questions. It's obviously, you know, there, there's a lot to do in safety at the moment um, and there is a lot happening. It's been a really busy year. Uh, so I think um, we will wrap it up, but thank you so much for coming. Uh, it's, it's been a really fascinating discussion. There's a lot going on. Um, I think this is a really exciting format. It's so interesting to, to see how these issues are playing out in everybody's um, individual practices and jurisdictions. Uh, we will be holding another, the third of our safety leadership series later in the year. Um, so we would invite you all to come along to that um, and look forward to it. Thanks very much. Thank you, Nerida. Thanks, Thanks all. Thank you.